0: This episode of The Most Innovative Companies is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. You're listening to Most Innovative Companies. I'm Josh Christensen, executive producer of podcasts at Fast Company. Today, we have another highlight from Fast Company's 2022 Innovation Festival from this past September in New York City. The panel is called Game Changers, Rewriting the Rules in the Sports Industry. Featuring panelists Rich Kleinman, Karen Nortman, and Lauren Miele. Enjoy.
1: All right. Um, welcome to Game Changers, rewriting the rules in the sports industry. Um, thanks to Rich, Laura, and Kara for being here. Um, we've got three panelists this afternoon uh, who come from very different corners of the sports industry, but they all have one thing in common, which is that they belong to the future not the past in what can be a a pretty hidebound industry. Um, Rich, I'll start with Rich directly to my left, is the co-founder of 35 Ventures and the longtime manager of Kevin Durant. 35 Ventures incorporates uh, Kleinman and Durant's businesses across sports, tech, and media, uh, including investments in more than 75 companies from Coinbase to Postmates to OpenSea. Laura Miel, uh, next one over, is the uh, is, uh, the COO of Electronic Arts, the video game giant, whose sports portfolio includes uh, FIFA, the soccer video game, uh, and Madden, the great uh, longtime you know, NFL game. Um, Karen Nortman uh, is the managing partner of the venture capital firm Upfront Partners and the co-founder with Natalie Portman of the women's soccer club, Angel City FC. Um, so let's get into it, those are our three panelists. Um, I'm gonna start with a question for Rich. Uh, we're well into the, uh, the, the so-called player empowerment era. Um, when free agency and social media has shifted power away from ownership and management and toward players, uh, especially in the NBA. So Rich, your your partner, Kevin Durant, of course, is a prime example of this. Um, How has this shift changed the experience for fans and how will that evolve in the near future?
2: Um, That's a good question. Uh, I think it's social media that's really shifted the experience for fans. Uh, Player empowerment is right. Adam Silver, the NBA, would tell you that it's a star-driven league, it's a player-driven league, and we want that as fans. Um, and it's existed historically forever. I'm watching the Lakers doc right now. Uh, there's like three of them, but I'm watching them all. And Magic Johnson asked for a trade after like game 14 of a regular season game and said that either the coach goes or he goes. Yeah. I'm also watching the same Lakers doc where Shaq and Kobe both went at each other in the press. And... Kobe called a journalist and said certain things about Shaq, and Shaq did the same, and so on. Michael Jordan, everyone's gone through this. Whether you agree with it or not, that's the nature of having stars of this caliber. And I think in any field, whoever's the best at what they do, the most skilled, the most elite, is going to control a bit more of the direction of the organization they're with or what they're going to do for themselves. What's happened, though, which is different from those examples, is that this culture's been created where it's also accompanied by divisiveness and debating and criticizing. And there's a lot of information out there, some true, some not true, and it's created a lot of toxic kind of, I guess, stigma a bit to this player empowerment era. But I think that there is something that has to be fixed as it relates to social media's impact on the NBA especially. I think it's it's affected the culture, it's affected the culture of the off-season, it's affected players, it really has. But I think the idea that player empowerment is bad for sports or bad for the fans, I think, is probably not the case. I think it's been that way. And again, I think like we rely on stars to generate the impact that these sports have globally, especially the NBA. Um, and I think that's just going to continue.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, people that might have an issue with player empowerment tend to be um, owners, you know, maybe the league itself. Um, but I think you could make a case that uh, a huge byproduct of player empowerment, combined with social media and everything you just described, is that the games are, year the sports are year-round now. And that's good yeah. for the league. I mean, the attention to the off-season uh, has never been like it is now.
2: For sure. I mean, and also, you know, the owners do control the situation still, because they don't have to move a player they ask to be traded. And free agency was something that was agreed upon by both the union and the league, and it's healthy for the league. I understand if fans are frustrated. As a fan myself, I would have been frustrated if Patrick Ewing left the Knicks. You know, as a kid, it would have killed me, but I think as I've gotten older and understood the business a bit and understand what comes with playing professional sports, and again, they are blessed to be able to get to that level, and they've worked hard for it, but a lot comes with it, and a lot of um, added stress with social media, whether it's the players doing or just the nature of the state of social media right now it has an impact and I think it's something that has like you said benefited the league from an entertainment standpoint I mean there's an argument that like the movement over the summer is as compelling as a regular season of the NBA and you know I think it's a gift and a curse but ultimately like I said I don't see it changing I just think the leagues and and players and teams have to do a better job of as tough as it is with social media of wrangling in people that have just so much access and, and yep. you know proprietary information that if we were all talking amongst ourselves of, of frustration that we had at work and it got aired out in real time, it would be detrimental to any organization you know and sometimes those emotions change, especially in an off season and I think everyone can imagine that if a team loses you 're going to go into the off season frustrated and when you've played in this league for so long and you know what you know about winning and how a certain culture can be, you expect certain things. And I think at times, you know, it's exacerbated just by the uh, rumors that come with it. And yep. Yep. it's affecting everything though. I mean, it's affected politics and everything. in Absolutely. the world,
1: so. yeah. So we're gonna come to, back to that thing you said about uh, a team not having to move a player at the, when the, yeah, so we'll come back to that at the end. Okay. Um, Kara, okay, I'm gonna to go to you now. Um, you're the co-founder, as I mentioned, with Natalie Portman of Angel City FC, um, women's soccer team in Los Angeles, part of the National Women's Soccer League. Um, there have been plenty of, maybe not plenty, there have been previous attempts um, to start Women's Professional Soccer League in the United States. Um, there's no reason this shouldn't work. The women's national team is, by competitive you know, uh, comparison to their, uh, their competition around the world, far better than the U.S. men's team, always has been, um, and yet none have stuck. Um, how and why will the NWSL succeed where others have failed?
3: I mean, ironically, I'd say it's because of social media that we were able to convince people that it could work this time because women's sports has never had media distribution, and so it creates this virtuous cycle. I used to say, you know, when I believed that women's soccer, or as I call it football, um, would... I I tell people we're building a team for a bunch of reasons, but one is to show that we can build enterprise value of a club that's as big as Manchester United or Liverpool or the L.A. Lakers someday. Um, And then, you know, when they would look at me in disbelief and now they look at me with much less disbelief. When I was starting the team, there was a lot of disbelief. Uh, I would say, you know, look, look at the viewership of the World Cup. Look at the viewership. It's as if you have um, a Super Bowl commercial and then your website is down for four years. You have no idea of the virtuous cycle. Like as a fan in 2015, after being activated by that event, I went to nine different stores to buy a jersey, found one, for my three daughters found one, and it didn't have a name on the back, and then I went to go find content, you can't find it. It was like you could find something on Yahoo that was streamed from outer space where the players were this big, you don't watch that. So, but why now, what I could do was uh, follow you know Megan Rapino but also Ali Long who was gaming and a bunch you know a, a bunch of others on Instagram and so you could kind of say like there are people out there doing this and create channels through the players to bring people back but the why now I think is really simple leadership capital and timing and you need a little bit of luck, but apparently people who say you need a little bit of luck are more lucky, so I'm just going to keep saying it. Um, uh, the last two leagues I don't think were funded sustainably, and they, they probably didn't have distribution, and like they probably didn't have the right distribution to create a flywheel, and you need your capital to really show up and understand how long the opportunity is going to take, um, and then have people around the table who are exceptional. And we brought people in to the league, into our team who'd never been in sports. We brought media executives, gaming executives, tech executives. So a lot of things came together, but a lot of it is around sort of leadership at the league and teams level and just solving problems in smart ways where if it fails, the whole league doesn't fail and you have a plan B and you just
1: then move through it. Okay, thank you. Um, Rich, I'm gonna come back to you for one, and then we're gonna get to you, Laura, sorry about that. (laughs) Rich, 35 v is an investor in Gotham FC, another uh, NWS, NWSL club. Um, and I know you're bullish on the business prospects, just in general, of a wide range of sports that in previous eras, would have been maybe too niche for the economics to work. Um, what are some of these sports and why do you think market conditions are right now for them to thrive?
2: Uh, yeah, well, I think this kind of uh, thesis of how we wanted to invest in the future had to do a lot with watching sports come back to form during the pandemic. Cornhole, I think, was this first sport that ESPN <laughs> televised. And the excitement that people felt, the amount of chatter around it, gambling platforms that were like quickly scurrying to figure out how they could create odds around it. And then I'm watching this and I see sponsors on the jerseys. I see people that are elite at Cornhole, but they're elite. Um, And it's the same as any other sport. The problem is, is I think historically, all these sports were built and compared to the four major league sports or thought to be operated in the same way. We needed to build these things, look for media distribution, and do everything in the same exact way that leagues had been built. And that's just not feasible. These are communities that are ravenous. I've watched it. These are experiences that are entertaining. And I think that the opportunity to look at some of these sports in these communities and market them in a different way, figure out how to create the experience, how to create storytelling and rivalries amongst these athletes, and to market it according to that business, that sport and that fan base and nothing else, and it can have a real life because these are sports that have existed forever. When you see the success of women's soccer, like she said, that's just the model's broken. Something's not right. You can't have 100,000 people in a stadium and having young women and young men lined up for hours to meet these stars and then not have a professional organization that works. it's yeah. going to take time, but I think the idea of looking at these sports the way we're looking at women's soccer, or the professional lacrosse league or pickleball and saying and pickleball's a whole other conversation. But um, <laughs> these are real communities. These are real communities, real sports. They have real history. There's fan bases. And it's just about knowing how to activate and build around them and not compare them to the professional sports of the world, the other yeah. ones. Uh,
1: Laura, your company, EA, publishes some of the world's, uh, you know, the most popular video games in the world, um, for sports in particular, but also other, other types of games. Um, you have data showing that the time spent watching gameplay, watching people play the games on the internet, um, and maybe in person, I don't know, uh, is catching up with the time actually spent playing the games. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about this and how this social element feeds into the changing nature of sports fandom more generally?
0: Yeah, sure. It's, it's a similar theme of what Rich and Kara are talking about. Our motivations for play and engagement in our content is radically changing with these generations of players and, and players in my um, vocabulary are game players and players in your vocabulary, I <laughs> just want to clarify. Um, but game players are, um, you know, thinking about different modalities of gameplay around play, create, watch, connect. So they're, they're deeply motivated by self-expression and creative expression and deeply motivated by social engagement, and so we're seeing that behavior inside of our games and outside of our games. And what Brendan mentioned is, um, last year we had one, uh, oh, close to four billion hours, four billion hours of gameplay in FIFA. So over four billion hours of games were, uh, were played in FIFA, and then close to two billion hours were in watching FIFA watching FIFA game content, gameplay, people playing FIFA, learning how to play better from people playing FIFA, being entertained by influencers by people playing FIFA. And it's just a spectacular insight and data point, and it's new, and it's one of the fastest-growing sectors and modalities of the gameplay that we um, create. And and interestingly as well, another insight that I, I just have found to be fascinating in our network, we're incredibly proud at Electronic Arts. We have over 600 million players in our network. That, that, that's a lot. It's, it's, it's significant and it's growing. And we're really proud of having that community of global gamers coming together, engaging together, playing together, having shared experiences together. But we have, what we have found is the most powerful and the most valuable part of that network are these atomic networks. And this atomic networks of four or five people, four or five, not 45, four or five, not eight to ten, not two to three, it's four or five people that come together. And when you, have, when you play in a group of four or five friends, you spend more time, up to 40% more time in the game, and you spend between 35 to 45% more in our game when you have a friend group of four or five people. I just find that fascinating, and so we are highly motivated to create these really great, beautiful little atomic networks and groups of friends. And it was funny; I was, I was talking to Brennan before we came, before I came here, and we were saying, "Why? Why is it four or five? And I and I don't know the scientific answer to this, to be honest. But when you think about your core group of friends and who you really have time to invest in, how you think about that. I was even thinking about, you know, superhero movies and games. It's, like it's usually four, a group of four or five people, Fantastic. you know? You, yeah, so, um, so, so we're, we're just highly motivated to create experiences where groups of friends can come together um, in that way. And, and we believe that, um, you know, that the, the sports consumption is being interrupted greatly and that gaming and interactive entertainment and what you do inside the game and outside the games can really unite fans through the love of sports.
1: Um, I have a question that it's a very specific one, but I'm just, uh, I, I kind of know the answer to this, but I is want to Is this hear more hear feedback
0: your... about our game from your son? <laughs> no, I'm
1: just taking it. I gave Laura some notes from my step <laughs> about, about <laughs> some changes <laughs> that <laughs> needed <laughs> to happen in FIFA. <laughs> um, the game is changing its name to EA Sports FC next year. It is. Um, Can you tell us why that is? Yeah, this decision is probably one of the most exciting decisions our company
0: has ever made, Um, really, really excited about this. We have been in a partnership with FIFA for 30 years, and it has been a wonderful partnership. We have entertained hundreds of millions of players. We've made over $20 billion in revenue. And what we're seeing is that the nature of global football is changing and how fans, how our game players engage with a sport is evolving and changing. And so we talked about creative expression earlier, about Gen Z fans and the social networks and social engagement and things impacting all of our businesses and sports. Um, It's very real. And so the idea that we could own and control the largest franchise, the largest game that we have and where we have the most significant amount of growth was meaningful to us. And keep in mind, our game does not change at all. We have over 300 licenses with clubs, teams, leagues, partners around the world. So nothing changes in the game. And yet we get to expand our purview about the offerings, how we create and customize for players, and it can really become our fans and our game players' game, truly, that they can own it and have agency in it. We can bring other partners in, um, commercial partners that bring authenticity to an experience for, for our gamers. So we're really, we're really excited about this, um, this big launch. And again, we've had FIFA for 30 years, so next year's the first day of the rest of our lives. EA Sports Football Club will be launching. Cool,
1: okay, thank you. Thanks. Um, so here's a natural segue. Let's talk about the internationalization of the audience. Um, the NBA has never been more international in terms of its fans, the players on the court. Um, you know, EA makes games for players on the world. I think you have something like 18 languages that you make games in. Um, soccer is, of course, the global game, the Super Bowl which we think of here in America as the, you know, pinnacle of viewership and event, uh, an event, uh, sports event that captures everyone's attention. It only had a third the audience of the Champions League final, um, which is the Super Bowl of Soccer. Um, Kara, you run a a team in a domestic league, but you have a global outlook. So if you could uh, talk to us a little bit about how you think about the world, what you borrow uh, from global leagues um, as you help to build this, this new league that you're part of.
3: Yeah, I mean, so, um, you know, it's interesting how all of our worlds intersect. So um, we may use players, the the term players differently, but format of, you know, an esports game or an online game versus an actual game is really important, and it's really important for sort of, like, the modern demographic. And so, again, global football is, it was, like, purpose-built in my mind for this time and is rooted in... 100 years of hundreds of years of amazing history in other parts of the world. Um, what do I mean by that? I mean, it's a tight 90 minutes, 15 minute half. It's not your entire day. It's more episodic. Right. So it's once a week. Usually you can build up like all so all this human interest around the players and the stories. It's what people call weak link sport, meaning like uh, every single player on the, on the pitch has a role to play, and if one of them kind of you know, doesn't show up, you don't win. Um, people in America are sometimes like, what is a draw? How do you tie? And then if you go to Europe, they say, what are playoffs? You have a whole season? that you compete for then to have this little teeny new season at the end? That makes no sense. (laughs) And they have topics, they have things like relegation, where every single, like like, in America, you're playing for the bottom if you're not going to make it to the top to get a top draft pick. So there's, it's really fun and interesting to show up with a curious mind, I think, and learn from people around the world. When I go to England or Europe to speak, I have to check my terms. I have to make sure I'm not going to offend anyone um, because you can show up as incredibly American. And I think it's one of the things I love about it is I can just show up and learn and then give them a little bit of a growth mindset as to what's possible with a women's sport. I mean, we sell out, just to be clear, we sell out stadiums, 22,000, Person stadiums. If anyone is in LA Wednesday or Sunday of this week, it's our last two home games and it's going to sell out. And people come to us and say, this is more fun than the Super Bowl. Like we've had people come and say that to us. And so I think it's this beautiful, like it's this very international sport, earliest days of, um, really internationalizing you know, from a broadcast standpoint. I mean, it's really important to understand the Super Bowl does two times the viewers of the Champions League finals, which because it hasn't gotten distribution around the world and it's a global sport. Um, and it is really set up in a way where we can, like, as the women, we can learn from the men. We might want better salary caps. Possibly. We might not, you know? And so, anyway, it's a lot of, like, it's a very fertile place to spend time right now. And it really is younger, more demographically aligned. You know, we do have access problems in the United States in terms of it's become this club sport and it should be pretty easy. You have a ball, you have some dirt, you can go play. But in a lot of other parts of the world, it is like that. And so it's going to be this global talent base where, you know, we had the Mexican national team come play us and we had an entirely different audience than our season ticket holders. Um, I mean, we had a lot of our season ticket holders, but show up and everyone was speaking Spanish in a stadium in Los Angeles. And so. Um, you know, and, and, and media and distribution of the sport, I think, is only going to accelerate that. And I think we have a long, long way to go, even for the Premier League, which is the top league in the world and does, you know, five, six billion over three years in media revenue.
0: This episode of Most Innovative Companies is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home Internet. Find the plan that's right for you at Verizon.com. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, one of our panelists um whose session is on Thursday, Jennifer Garner is an Angel City FC oh, yeah. super fan. Oh, I noticed that and I was reading it about. Yeah. Yes. 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 <laughs>
3: She's um, she still she she likes to play the she likes to, she, she knows a lot more than she lets on, but she's like, yeah, Are they goals or points? You know? And she's been, ama- she's been an amazing, amazing, true advocate. But anyway, keep yeah.
1: going. Yeah, no. And, and just to your point about relegation and promotion, I would absolutely love to see that in American sports. Probably never going to happen for all kinds of reasons, but man, that would be fun. Um, all right, let's move on to gambling, um, which has become just a massive topic in the sports world, um, especially in the last few years. There, there was no legalized sports betting. Until the, 2000, until the Supreme Court in 2018 made it legal. It took a couple of years for the leagues to catch up, put the infrastructure in place. Now you cannot turn on a game without being absolutely inundated with ads for the betting apps. Um, it's really changed everything um, about about sports, consuming sports. This is true on the kind of lighter end with fantasy, and it's true on the sort of more Vegas-style betting that we think of when we think of sports betting. So, Rich, I'd like to ask you, how has this changed the sports business for better, worse, and in between?
2: Um, I think it's still unfolding, but I would say better in that this has existed forever. We've all been aware of it. I think any negative ramification of it would probably have manifested itself during a, a legal time in gambling. Now that it's so above board and it's legal in 33 states, I think, It's just more opportunity for fans, it's more fan engagement, like you said, it's more capital being put into sports and into these leagues and more opportunity for athletes and players to make money. There's a heavy commitment on behalf of a lot of these gambling companies around responsible gaming. And I think that is obviously the biggest concern, but that's bigger than sports. That's a concern about having gambling being so accessible and so legal now is trying to at the same time initiate some level of responsible gaming which i think we all understand is not real right like if someone's gambling and they're not responsible that's how people get in trouble gambling and i think what we can expect though is that there's going to be a lot of creativity i think there's a lot more opportunity for content there's a lot more opportunity for gameplay. i think things that we don't even know exist i think we've always thought of gambling again in these like traditional ways there's parlays and betting on games but live betting now is initiated a lot of excitement in other sports and for other sports they can use that, you know, and as we start to invest in some of these secondary sports, you know, the need for the gambling companies to list these sports, um, you know, we work very closely with Athletes Unlimited and one of the big things they wanted to do in the beginning was just get listed on FanDuel. You know, there's a certain level of credibility I think that brings to your sport for whatever reason, the optics, and then there's opportunity for a lot of revenue and excitement and engagement and you know, i think again it's not going anywhere i think the leagues have embraced it you, they're getting money from all of them i think you'll see it on jerseys more and more you know our media platform boardroom which kevin is a co-owner with me on we've partnered with fanduel and we've started creating gambling content and we're very open about it so i think it's just here and there's a responsible element to it there's a lot of capital that's being infused into sports and there's a lot more excitement that is potentially a big bonus for other sports that haven't gotten that type of attention, the way football's been driven by gambling and fantasy conversation forever.
1: So, we're not worried about competitive integrity. We, we, we've, I mean, you're, yes, this has been going on illegally for a long time, but the one thing I worry about, I'll just put my cards on the table, is there are so many Small games, you know, not pro, you know, college, like all levels that you can gamble on. And it just seems like it's incredibly easy to fix games in theory for that and almost impossible to detect when it's happened. What are you up to? <laughs> <laughs>
2: um,
1: Do we not remember the 1918 World Series? I mean, boxing was basically yeah, ruined right. by gambling. I actually like...
2: think, though. You're, I mean, yes, you're right. I think to a degree there's that concern. But again, I mean, there's been billions and billions of dollars yearly gambled and wagered illegally. And people understood it. They turned the other cheek, too. And I think that probably, if anything, was encouraging of more of that conversation because you had certain types of people that were taking these bets and were books make, bookmakers and odds makers. Um And I think you probably see that Glitch in a smaller sport even more so than you would at a bigger sport where I yeah. still don't think it's gonna happen But if if there was a fix on in a cornhole game We'd we'd Very. all probably pick up on it pretty quickly with yeah. the action all on one side
1: I know a fix and pickleball would break your heart. So let's <laughs> hope that doesn't happen um, Laura are we gonna be able to bet on like so I'm watching I'm in the two billion that's watching the four billion Play can I bet on am I gonna be able to bet on who's gonna win this FIFA game?
0: Well, you yeah, know as Rich said um, gambling and fantasy sports is certainly an engagement model of sport consumption and sport modality. And we see all kinds of um, different modalities from streaming to watching highlights to watching a real game to playing a video game to betting, um, fantasy, and that those experiences, I believe, will probably aggregate somewhere and start aggregating into a platform. Um, for electronic arts and for EA sports, for us, we do not have, nor do we encourage. Wagering, betting, or gambling in our games, and I don't see that changing uh, in the future. We have so many um, potential runways for growth in the social engagement things we talked about, in the creation creation of content. Um, that that's really where we're focused um, in bringing the experiences for our players.
1: Okay, um, actually I actually want
0: to go this back. A question.
2: By all yes, means, please. Call of Duty and those games, Modern Warfare, is there a gambling component to those? You know,
0: no, not that, not not an organized one that I'm aware of.
2: There's esports, and so yeah. if
0: there's e-sport, if there, there could be gambling around esports or draft, um, sort of fantasy um, draft,
1: king sort of mode. Yeah. I believe. Mm-hmm. And for those who don't know, just to clarify, esports are actually organized mm-hmm. events where people are competing. yeah. They
0: play the they play the video games and compete against each other, and um, it's televised. It's content that's cre- broadcast content essentially that's created and broadcast through many channels. And that is where some viewership comes from, is actually watching people compete and ladder up in these tournaments, and they're spectacular, they're they're amazing. They are in the Super Bowl, exciting um, sort of energy.
3: And it was kind of the analogy that finally got investors to understand Angel City's potential before people thought anyone would show up for a women's sporting event. Because you could kind of look at that analogy and say, well, listen, if we build a great brand, We build player profiles people care about and it stands for something. Showing up on the pitch is just one incarnation of the brand and look at all the different ways we could show up and our first investor got into his head that esports was a better analogy for women's sports than the existing leagues because revenue streams were likely to come from more digital channels. And then how do you turn that into an opportunity versus a negative? And now a lot of people view it that way because we, we have more leeway with our rights and we can do more creative things digitally. You may actually hear about some of them soon.
0: <laughs> and you're going to leapfrog other, you're going to leapfrog other, the other teams and mediums of how you're approaching
3: this. There's like, there's more room to do yeah. things that like, yes, we have 12 owners, but we don't have 36 owners and we don't have $11 billion of broadcast revenue. I hope we will someday, you know, but because 98 of the top 100 you know, things people watch on on streaming or, or network are live. And now we have this proliferation of platforms. And so the demand side for rights are only going up. But it actually, like when COVID happened, it's like, how do you sit down and say, okay, people aren't showing up anyway for a lot of these teams. How do we turn that into an advantage? And how do we move faster around rights? And how do we like actually test some of those things. So that's the opportunity. It's also the opportunity with newer sports. We obviously have to nerd out on cornhole and pickleball, but um, (laughs) single entity structures, for example, where you can make fast decisions at the top for more emerging sports. Um, You know, speed of iterating and A-B testing and some of these newer, more participatory sports that can get out there in new channels, like super exciting. You're an investor, look at the sports asset class. It's just becoming an asset class. And it's a thing, as someone who spent my entire career investing in tech, I'm really moving all of my energy and focus over to sports. I think it's the beginning of it turning in to its own asset class, even for institutional investors, though right now it's just the province of family offices. Yeah,
2: I'll say, I mean, that's exactly what we've done over the last year. We wound down our first fund um, and strategically, not only as, An investment vehicle decided to invest in sports, but in building a content platform, that flywheel we were creating with these Mm -hmm. communities around each sport was the right way to go about investing. I will say the best thing that a lot of these leagues have going for them is the shift in ownership groups. And Angel City's done an impeccable job of building a brand that's in some ways bigger than the NWSL right away. But it benefits the league, and there's a tidal wave effect. And I think you're seeing a little bit of that in Gotham FC, and he, I would say fairly that like our interest was definitely triggered a bit by watching how they were creating their brand in LA. Um, and I think across all these sports, it's the interest in being in team sports, owning a piece of team sports in any form or fashion, and every one of us know that it, you cannot just walk into owning an NBA team or an NFL team, but the ability to have great CEOs and great entrepreneurs that are leading these teams now and leading these organizations, that's going to be what the difference is.
3: So call us if you guys want to start a team or invest in a team, because it's also, there's something to prove, and it's very collaborative, and it's just a different energy and vibe. You know, I'm helping teams in Boston and Austin and Denver. They have no financial stake in, try to get ready for expansion bids, and that's really fun for me, because we all win. You know, we all win, and we all have something to prove, um, and we all want to pay players and bring in sponsors.
1: I I skipped over this by accident earlier, and I want to come back to it, even though you you sort of did touch on this a little bit, but you said something to me that just really stopped me, which was um, the NWSL, or maybe you were talking about Angel City, I can't remember if it was the league or the team, but wouldn't exist without Instagram. So can you unpack that a little? Say that again, again. Wouldn't exist without Instagram.
3: Um, yes. I really wish I had more sleep last night because I'm not remembering oh, my favorite, per Ashlyn, Ashlyn Harris. So if any of you guys haven't followed Ashlyn Harris or like Christy Mewis, they, it's just, you start watching their Instagrams and it's like the best reality television you'll ever watch. But like of women. Throwing Budweiser all over themselves at times, but also then speaking articulately. And you know, my daughter is 14, who I didn't want on Instagram and started following beauty influencers who are wonderful, I'm sure, um, now follows <laughs> now follows NWSL players and is obsessed with them. And at the age of 14, in America is going to try out for soccer because there's one woman on our team who actually was just loaned out to France, but she started playing when she was 16. She is the center back for the Canadian national team and won a gold medal. So Instagram, I really feel like is this channel that's a leading indicator for what's possible with all the things we can all do. And we've basically built a content studio inside Angel City. And so it's how, you know, yes, we have amazing people in our cap table, but people show up because they're proud and they want to do content, and they do content for free for us, where they might get paid hundreds of thousands of dollars, we've created incentive systems to actually pay the players a small percentage of gate revenue to try to get them more revenue if they want to create specific content. So Instagram, um, I personally attribute to keeping my interest high. I mean, I spent four or five years trying to figure out women's soccer um, and led to to bringing the team to, um, to L.A., I, it wouldn't have happened for me without Instagram, but also, you know, there's a lot of other ways to do that over time, so. Um.
1: Great. Let's stay on you for one more, one more quick question here, which is about the future of the game as a televised sport. Um, you know, the, these TV deals are still, that, that's one thing that, that hasn't changed much about the old way. I mean, these TV deals are just absolutely gigantic for the big sports, the MLS, the Men's Pro League, just signed a 10-year, 2.5 billion-dollar deal with Apple TV. Um, the deals that, the, that your league has are with Twitch and CBS right now, um, they're modest deals. So can you talk to us about the future of that and what, you, what your goals are?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think I touched upon it a little bit earlier, but um, I, I mean, there's I, if you look at you know, the MLS, which is a new league in the world of global football, and you know, I, I think it, it indisputably has done an amazing job and probably the sixth best league in the world, they just did a $2.5 billion deal with Apple, right? And um, uh, I think as you see Apple and probably Netflix and Amazon and YouTube, along with all the traditional broadcasters, as you see a lot of those guys move to ad models and different models. We have very different demographics you know, in our season ticket holder base. It's younger, it's more diverse. Um, it's not just kids, like it's a huge percentage of our audience, like a majority of it are 17 to like 35. It's young people coming. It's a well-priced ticket. And so I think, you know, I expect that only to go up, you have to get tonnage. Like, it's not just like a magical thing, right? You need people in stadiums. You need tonnage, meaning like number of games, number of teams. Um, But getting broadcast revenue into leagues and into teams for women's soccer should be like falling off the floor. Like, that should. that's why we get to now trade for a really high multiple, because it should be like falling off the floor. What we need to do is get more people into stadiums. Get more owners who get owners who want to invest in the front office, marketing, databases, direct marketing. It's it's like you know it's it's a, it's it requires the sophistication that is required on you know Parachute Home, which is an e-commerce board that I sit on. So, yeah. um, but the future is bright, and we have a lot of those owners in the league. And the more people like Kevin and others who come in, bring awareness in a whole different way.
1: Um, Laura, I'd like to just ask you about um, the the an area where your industry is on the absolute cutting edge compared to all other industries that represent digitally things that exist in the real world, which is to say the realism of the athletes that you depict in your video games is just absolutely, I, I see it in my own home when my kids are playing, mind boggling. <laughs> um, talk to us about the vanguard of that where things are, there used to be the, the suits that they would put on and you would do the motion capture. Um, how is this done now? How is this going to be done in the future?
0: Yeah, fun question, particularly at an innovation and technology conference. It's good, I'm glad we're able to touch on this. Um, we, we have the luxury, Electronic Arts has been in business for 40 years, and um, those in technology, you know that you build on technology. We've invested billions of dollars, and every year you, inc- you get incrementally better and build on your base. And so after 40 years of investing in our technology, we are in a really unique position. And when you think about um, games, the little tiny pixels on the screen to where we are today, the human reality of seeing athletes move and their muscles move is fascinating. And it's it's, it's it's exceptional where we are. And we are actually, particularly in the areas of animation, we are further ahead than movies. And so when you see animation and special effects in movies, they don't compare to what we have accomplished in our sports games. And so a couple of fun stories I'll share with you um, that we're seeing in um, some of the advancements. We have, um, we have a, a few PhDs in biomechanics um, on staff, and they can measure the electric uh, electrical electro pulses in muscles, and can match that to our game creation and to the athletes in our game. So we are we are now this last year we are within a millimeter of accuracy of human muscle movement now. Um, and a few years ago we were within centimeters, and so that's what it is about to kind of just keep improving um, as as time goes on. And Brendan, you mentioned the motion capture suits, so I'm sure you all have seen the motion capture suits with the balls on them, and it captures movement. And now what we're doing is we, have, we, we can have 22 athletes in our studios capturing a match. And so the volume of that data is indescribable, how much, how much data that is. But what, what it does for us is we can capture individual movements and joint movements. We can also capture how they're interacting with each other. And that's the realism. That, that's where the suspension of disbelief when you're playing these games um, comes from. And lastly, the area that I'm incredibly excited about is um, the area of AI and machine learning in the development of content. And so we have a proprietary algorithm that um, in machine learning that captures 8.7 million capture frames, and it will translate um, into machine language into real-time animation for characters. And so what that does is we can actually take data from real-world players in a game and put that into our algorithm, into our machine learning, um, proprietary technology, and it will actually create natural, real movement day by day, week by week. So we just did a deal with La Liga, hmm. and so we're going to be a title sponsor with La Liga. It's an, a new new territory for us, in partnerships is incredibly exciting. And we um, get access to their data. And so when we will use that to enhance the game, enhance the experience for players. And so it's just, it's, a, it's just an incredibly exciting time. And I say all this, not, again, not just because we're at an innovation concert, uh, conference, but because I, I really believe that, you know, five, ten years from now, it's, it, it, right now it's for our game developers. I just cannot wait to put this ability and capability in the hands of our game players and that they, what they can create. They can real-time pull down data. They can adapt or adjust the games that they want to play based on the data that's available to them. And the game gets really smart around them. So exciting times and um, I can't wait, you know, for you all to see the the games that we have coming this year. And then again, every year it just builds on itself. So that's what we have cooking.
1: Very cool. Um, I'm gonna finish with a question for Rich. Um, I will probably, I'm a Nets fan, probably have some Nets fans here. Um, (laughs) I'll probably have a better chance to ask this question. So what can you tell us about what happened with Kevin at the end of last season? The decision just ultimately to stay with the Nets and just kind of spinning that forward into next season.
2: Um, Well, I guess it really is like similar to our first conversation, the first um, question in that I think that when you lose and you've competed at the highest level and I think it's well-documented how much Kevin loves basketball and how much he puts into the game of basketball. And as these guys get older, they're realists and they understand where they sit in the landscape of the league. And emotions are real. And you know, I think we've all felt these things at work. And you all have had times where you've been unhappy with where you've been, and it feels like you just hate everything. Um, and the good thing about time, and the good thing about like our abilities to be able to sit in our thoughts and communicate is that those emotions can change. And like we said earlier, the only problem with today is how much of that plays out in public. And it's never to the magnitude that anyone believes. Um, This isn't some unique experience and nobody likes this. Nobody likes what happened, but it is over. And he's happy where he is and it's going to be an incredible season. And, you know, I think it was a learning experience for everybody in terms of um, how communication can kind of get away from you. And, you know, you can't let everybody outside play a part in the reality of the situation. And I think once we were able to really, like, grasp that and deal with it on a human level, this wasn't something so complicated and, you know, time middle of the summer you feel different than you do towards the end of the summer and when you have communication and you have conversations that um, need to be had things change and um, it's really as simple as that it just you know there's a lot more that we have to explain and a lot more that is like up against a time frame or a clock or things that you know just come with being a professional athlete so yep I think that's really it, and you should be excited as a Nets fan, because when it does settle, they have an incredible team, and he's still Kevin Durant. Absolutely.
1: (laughs) Thanks for answering that. Um, Thanks to all three of you for a fantastic panel. Really, really appreciate it. Let's uh, put our hands together for these three. Thank you so much.